If you will take your copy of the scriptures and open it to Proverbs chapter 27 and then stand with me. I'm going to read this. It's not going to be on the screen behind me. So if you don't have a Bible, whether digital or physical, doesn't matter to me. Uh, listen, close your eyes and listen. A lot of Christians throughout history had to listen to the Bible because they weren't able to read it. And so there is something powerful in listening as someone else reads the scriptures. This is the word of the Lord, Proverbs chapter 27. We're going to be talking about friendship this morning. There are three verses that ought to catch your attention. Just to give you a hint, it's verse 6, verse 9, and verse 10. Those, that's where we'll spend our time. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's provocation is heavier than both. Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. One who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Like a bird that strays from its nest is a man who strays from his home. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Be wise, my son, and make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he puts up security for an adulteress. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. The continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. Iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who guards his master will be honored. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. Crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle, along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever, and does a crown endure to all generations. When the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. There will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and maintenance for your girls. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I'm going to ask a question. It's not a rhetorical question. That, that means that I actually want you to answer the question. Preachers uh, can be well known for asking rhetorical questions. They already have the answer in mind. I do have an answer in mind, but I'm curious what comes to your mind when I ask you the question, who do you think of as epic examples of friendship in history or in literature or in movies or in children's books even? Who comes to your mind as an epic example of friendship? You can just shout it out. You don't need to raise your hand. Okay, Frodo and Sam, I knew I was going to get that. I mean, in my mind, it was like top five. Like someone is going to say Frodo and Sam. 
Okay, so no other friendships from Lord of the Rings. That's, you could come up with that, but that's a good one. That's a good one. Any others? Oh, Anne and Diane. I was going to, that, that came to my mind too. Bosom friends, soul friends. That's uh, Anne of Green Gables. That's great. That's a great one. Another one. David and Jonathan. That's great. He's going to get some airtime today. Who else? Tom and Huck. Yep. Huck Finn. Tom Sawyer. Uh, okay, that's wing feather, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. That, that didn't come to my mind, but you can forgive me for that. Any others? Uh, Mr. Tumnus was a good friend, so that's C.S. Lewis. Yep, he was a good friend. With whom? Lucy. Okay, Lucy and Tumnus. That's good. Timon and Pumbaa, that's good. Disney characters. That actually, when I Googled this, that actually did come up as an epic example of friendship. That's great. Committed to each other. That's good. Here's some, here's some that also came to my mind. No one said this. Han and Chewie? Come on. The friendship of Han and Chewie in Star Wars. Calvin and Hobbes, if you're into comic characters. The friendship between Calvin and Hobbes. Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble, if you're a classic cartoon person. Uh, the friendship between Fred and Barney. Lucy and Ethel from I Love Lucy. That's a great example of a friendship that always gets into trouble. If you're, uh, if you're too sophisticated for examples like this, and your mind is in the depths of classical literature, perhaps Elizabeth Bennett and Charlotte Lucas from Pride and Prejudice, that friendship that endures even in the midst of having the same uh, person that they're attracted to and that they love. Uh, no, no examples from, um, from Harry Potter. Harry, Ron, and Hermione, great examples of friendship. And then, of course, Lord of the Rings. In the midst of all of these examples of friendship, in the midst of reading books and stories, in the midst of watching friendships on TV and in movies, you, you can realize very quickly that friendship fills the storylines of our world. Friendships fill those storylines. We've each most likely experienced the longing for a friendship or the longing for a deeper kind of friendship amongst our current friends. And I think it's a safe assumption because I've experienced that kind of longing myself. And I've talked with many of you, some of you, and I know that you experience those kinds of of longings. And, and even there are books that are being written currently, like Vaughn Roberts' True Friendship and Christine Hoover's Messy, Beautiful Friendship. And in each of those introductions to the books, they talk about this common resonance with a desire for friendship shared amongst their friends and shared amongst their church family. Those books have been written recently, and even the American Enterprise Institute did a survey in 2021, and the results of that survey caused one news outlet to publish a story that was titled America's Friendship Crisis, America's Friendship Crisis, and amongst other things, that study found that Americans have fewer friends now than they have in the past. So it's no surprise to me that when I talk to people, they're talking about their desire for friends, their desire for deeper friendship. They're longing for something greater than what they currently have. And that's not just us. It sounds like that's a struggle in society at large. And this morning, 
we gather around God's word, not to commiserate with each other about our longings and desires, but to look together at God's word, to hear what he says about any given subject and to conform our lives to his word. Rather than share my thoughts and opinions about what friendship can be and should be or what the unique characteristics of Emmanuel are as it relates to friendship, I'm sure you have lots of thoughts and opinions on those topics as well. But rather than do that, I thought that it would be most helpful for us to see building blocks or cornerstones of friendship from Proverbs 27. In the midst of myself and so many of you longing for more, I think it's helpful to turn to some of the fundamentals of what friendship is. And you know, it's really important not to overlook or underestimate the fundamentals. If you've played any kind of organized sport, I've played baseball more than other sports, but in any kind of sport, an emphasis on the fundamentals is really, really significant. In baseball, you've got to learn to watch the ball. You can't shut your eyes when you swing the bat. You've got to learn to get your glove on the dirt if you're going to stop a ground ball. You've got to learn to catch the ball before you try and throw the ball. These basic fundamentals of baseball can't be emphasized enough. And that's true in any sport. The fundamentals of free throws in basketball. It doesn't get very complicated to learn to practice and to nail free throws. But games are won or lost on the fundamentals, whether it's baseball or basketball. And I think the same is true of friendships. In the midst of a longing for the nuances and the complexities of friendship, it can be very easy to gloss over the fundamentals of friendship. You can't long for the epic complexity of the details of the glorious examples of friendship without skipping, without skipping over the fundamentals of what makes a friendship. And I think that's where it's right for us to spend our time. Don't underestimate the fundamentals. Let's talk about the fundamentals of friendship. And so you could think of this sermon really as titled Friendship 101. Friendship 101. Some of this stuff may sound really, really basic. And some of you may say, I want more. And that's good. And that's fine. But we're going to stick to the 101s. There are four things I want you to see from Proverbs this morning. The first is that friends tell the truth. The second is that friends communicate regularly. The third is friends are committed to each other. And lastly, that Jesus is a friend. Let's go with number one. Friends tell the truth. This is Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. The wounds in this verse refer to the truth even when it hurts. The cornerstone of a friendship is primarily a commitment to telling the truth, no matter what the implication is for that friendship. This building block of friendship, it calls for a recognition that there is something greater than your acceptance by another person. Your desire for acceptance by another person actually can cause you to fall into flattery. Flattery is like telling the person what you think they want you to say or you think that they might want to hear about a given subject. But a friend 
is primarily committed to something other than their own acceptance by another person. They're primarily committed to serving that person and serving that person through truth, telling the truth, even when it's hard, even when it's painful, even when it's awkward, is a friendly thing to do. It's actually the basis of uh, what you might call a friendly relationship with anyone. Anyone can be friendly with another person. And that friendliness is composed by being committed to telling the truth. It's the behavior of a friend. A friend is one who tells you the truth. Flattery is not friendliness. It may be pleasant for the moment. It may be fulfilling in that second, but it's ultimately destructive. Flattery is destructive. Proverbs 26 says that a lying tongue is hatred. It's hatred. It's not just easy or smooth or convenient or saving face or honorable. It's actually hatred. And a flattering mouth isn't just kind of an easy way to get out of the moment. It actually works ruin. A lying tongue is hatred, and a flattering mouth works ruin. This building block, a commitment in a friendship to truth, is pretty straightforward and easy enough. It's probably not something that you've never heard of. It's not something that's revolutionary. And I think at Emmanuel, it can be something that's very easy to agree with and nod your heads and be committed to. Yes, we're committed to the truth no matter what. We're committed to truth in a friendship, even when it's difficult and when it's hard. We tell the truth. In doing so, we're being friendly, even in the most casual of friendships. But in the midst of telling the truth, in addition to the friendliness of telling the truth, Proverbs indicates that friendship can go deeper than just telling the truth. Friends communicate regularly. Proverbs 27, the second part of verse 9, says this, the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. That earnest counsel, that earnest counsel, it refers to advice that comes from the soul of a friend. From the soul. In, in the ESV, it's translated as earnest counsel. In other translations, it can be like soulful counsel. Comes from the very center of someone. And now when you think about the sweetness of a friend coming from their sincere or earnest or soulful counsel, you, you have to be able to realize that that kind of communication doesn't happen right off the bat, right? It, you don't just go from zero to soulful counsel with someone in one conversation. The soulful counsel has to be informed by a deep knowledge of the person with whom you're communicating. It has to come as a result of regular communication. Speak and listen with your friends often and about many things. Don't just touch base with your friends for truth reviews, where you give them feedback and truth applied to their lives. Share conversations that range broadly and topics that cover all the diverse situations and joys and experiences and trials and griefs of your varied lives. Your life consists of so many details 
and facts and reactions and thoughts and true friends share those details with each other as they communicate regularly. They update each other on what's happening. They share with each other about the things that they've learned, whether they're learning through reading or whether they're learning through trials and experiences. Catching up really is a great phrase that describes how friends speak with each other about so many different things. You catch up. What's been going on? Tell me. Tell me what's been happening. I want to catch up with you. It's a great phrase. Don't just ask soul care types of questions with your friends. Questions can vary about all different kinds of circumstances. Friends share common interests together. And those common interests mean that they enjoy the same kinds of subjects and topics. These common interests fuel long conversations that are engaging and thoughtful. And as Christians, we obviously share a common interest in the gospel, which shapes so much of our conversations, but we also have different common interests that shape different friend groups. And that is totally fine. UK fans are invariably going to hang out together. That's just the way it is. UofL fans are going to invariably be drawn to each other because they know who the potential starting lineup is and they know who the recruits are for the team and they follow the sports talk radio and they know those details and they love to talk about those details with other people who know those details. That's, that's the, the natural gift of common interest that is kind of a backbone of communication in a friendship. And it's totally fine for there to be varying dynamics within a church this size of people who get along together and people who don't have a lot of common interests. We all have one common interest in the gospel, but there are varied other common interests. And those common interests ought to and should lead you to communicate regularly about our central common interest in the gospel and all the other varied common interests that we have together as human beings. Those different interests, they shape different friendships, whether it's sports teams or hobbies or parenting life stage similarities. Friends can go long and they ought to go long in conversation. And it's those long conversations that give way to the opportunity for the sweetness of a friend and their soulful, earnest counsel. It comes from a place of, I know you, I know what you love. I know how you think about this and how you think about that. And I know you how you put those things together and I know how you've walked with Jesus through life. And, and here's a word I wanna tell you in the midst of this circumstance. That soulful conversation is sweet. It is a sweet friendship. So speak and listen with friends often and about many things. Secondly, I want to encourage you to prioritize face-to-face -face communication. Prioritize face-to-face -face communication. In chapter two of his book, The Life We're Looking For, which I actually recommend you read. You can write that down or ask me later. The Life We're Looking For. The author, Andy Crouch, helpfully explores the significance of personhood and human development, recognition and personal connection and technology in your face. This is a, kind of a weird way of ending that phrase. And your face. Here's a quote from an interview he did about the book. 
that babies arrive and literally in the moments after birth, they open their eyes. And they can't focus their eyes. They don't have the muscles to focus, you know, to adjust the focus of their eyes. But their eyes are built to focus if they're a normal-sighted baby. Six to eight inches away, which is exactly where a baby is when the mother is holding the child. And when a baby sees a face, I mean, you can see it on their face. They pay attention. They focus on it. And then studies of this show literally, neurologically, you're more like lighting up. Your brain is ready to see a face the moment you're born. So I start the book that way because I want us to keep in mind like what we most need as human beings is this, this connection with other persons. We absolutely require it to survive. And I actually think it's something that is a bit in peril and in danger in our technological world is so many people kind of miss out whether early in life or later in life, on that recognition that we all need essentially face-to-face -face communication. It's not a preference. It's not just a casual desire. It's hard-coded neurologically as a human being that you must have face-to-face -face time even from the moment you're born in order to thrive. But you know, it's not, it's not just uh, neurological scientific studies that indicate the significance of face-to-face -face communication. We actually see this emphasis consistently in the Bible. In Exodus 33, Moses describes to us when he met with God in the tent of meeting that God spoke face-to-face -face with him as a man speaks with his friend. He spoke face-to-face -face as a man speaks to his friend. There's an indication that friends don't have mediators. Their, their, their friendship is not mediated between some device or some other communication, some other person. You speak face to face with someone who is your friend. And Moses shared that and was called a friend of God. He called a friend of God. Abraham was called a friend of God because he was declared righteous by his faith. John in the New Testament, both in 2 John and in 3 John, says, I hope to come to you to talk face to face, and I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. John wasn't content with just writing letters where his heart was articulated on the pages of a manuscript. He longed to be able to say something to his friends face to face. Paul says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 2. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. And in light of what we know about neurological reactions in babies and the necessities of face to face communication, human development, you can see how this is not just an apostolic preference that's just a pastoral care dynamic between these writers of the scriptures and their desire to teach people face to face. No, it's a, it's a reflection that we're made in the image of God. That in order to really know one another and communicate with one another, there are dynamics beyond words in the way that we understand and hear. There are nuances of facial expressions. Memes can't articulate the dynamics of what the eyebrows can do in relation to the nose and the mouth and the ears and the forehead when you listen or speak with someone. Someone said that the eyes are the windows to the soul. And when you see face to face with someone, you're able to have that soulful kind of communication that is earnest and is sweet.
So for those of you who regard each other as friends, speak regularly with each other and speak face-to-face as much as possible. Prioritize it. It's so easy. It's so easy to just connect casually or in passing or superficially through technology and social media. But prioritize face-to-face communication as much as possible. Doing so will strengthen and deepen your friendships. Don't spend more face-to-face time with your phone than you do with your friends. The third observation that I want you to see in Proverbs is how Proverbs describes friends being committed to one another. Proverbs 27.10, the first half of the verse says this, Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. This do not forsake your friend, it refers to being there for your friend when they have a need and doing whatever you can to help them in that time of need. A friend is that there no matter when, no matter when, to lend a hand or to lend a listening ear. A friend weeps and rejoices, not because of how your situation affects them. They weep and rejoice. Their reaction to you is not because of the implications on themselves, but simply because of their love for you and their participation with you in your own experiences. Do not forsake your friend. Be there for your friend. Now this next phrase, or your father's friend, kind of threw me for a loop as I thought about it. This, I think, refers to the multi-generational depth that some close friendships can reach. Before really thinking about this verse, I'd never really, I'd never really thought about how any multi-generational dynamics could affect my friendships. As a, a Western individualist and an American, which has a lot of benefits in philosophy and you're thinking about life, it also has some real clear downsides. I'm used to making my own way. I'm used to having my own dreams. I'm used to relying on my own friends and being careful on which friends I make, regardless of who my parents are or regardless of what my parents think in many ways. But this passage clearly states that I and that we have an obligation to the friends of our parents. These closest of friends are the ones you perhaps Knew, uh, knew as you grew up. They spent lots of time with your parents. You may have even thought that they were family because of how much time they spent in your home or how much time you spent in their home. You may have even referred to them as aunt or uncle, even though they weren't but a blood relative. Perhaps they came through the front door freely and helped themselves to the fridge or the pantry. These friends of your father and your mother are the ones I think that are mentioned here. 1 Kings 12 actually tells us a story of King Rehoboam and his folly in rejecting and neglecting the friends of his father, King David. Your father's friends give access to a broader spectrum of wisdom and experience. And even applying this from last week, your access to and knowledge of and ability to draw from the wisdom of gray heads ought to extend in your thinking to the friends of your parents. What friends were there for your parents? Those friends are there for you. Don't forsake those kinds of friends. This multi-generational dynamic of friendship is a depth of friendship that is hard for me to comprehend, but wasn't hard for my friend who lives in Central Asia. 
He said, oh yeah, that's exactly how I got the house that I lived in because I was visiting a friend who was at that moment visiting with a friend of his father in his home and that relationship allowed me to gain access to this house that was available that I wouldn't have had available otherwise. He said, and that's commonplace, commonplace in Central Asia where uh, friends of family are uh, acknowledged and regarded with an obligation for sincerity and commitment and loyalty. And this means that our wondrously gracious God has given us an opportunity to learn from other cultures that do friendship, to use a casual phrase, so much better than we do as Americans. I think of our brothers and sisters from Afghanistan could teach you Americans way more about friendship than you could possibly imagine. And you ought to seek to learn from them, especially in this dynamic of the multi-generational commitment of friends. Don't just wait for your friends to grow old so that you can gain their wisdom. Access the wisdom of the friends of your fathers. These friends are the ones that you ought to be committed to in addition to the friends that are of your own generation. In thinking through what the Bible teaches us about the basics of friendships here in Proverbs 27, I imagine that some of you are thinking about the details and the layers of friendships that you currently enjoy. And you're thinking to yourself, well, do I do that in this relationship? Or do, do I have that dynamic uh, uh, happening in this relationship? Or, or maybe even you're thinking of, man, I, I wish I had that dynamic happening in this, or I wish I had that kind of relationship. M many of you are thinking of yourselves in light of what I'm saying. And even more of you are probably likely thinking that the friendships you don't have you wish you did have. That's, that's been the case for me. That's been the case for me as I've thought about these things and read God's word is, are my friendships characterized by this? Man, I, I wish I had friendships like this and I wish that these friendships were more and I wish, I wish that I had what I don't have in relation to these things. We long for friendships because we're supernatural beings with eternal souls and flesh and blood bodies. We are made in the image of God and we have the capacity for friendship and we enjoy the depth of friendship. C.S. Lewis, he makes a very important and a really thought-provoking point in his chapter uh, in his book, The Four Loves, which again, I recommend that you read that. The chapter is on friendship where he's talking about friendship. And he says this, friendship is unnecessary like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself, because God did not need to create it. So first off, if you find that thought-provoking, friendship is unnecessary, like philosophy. If you find that thought-provoking, good. Go read more of what he said. Secondly, in addition to provoking your thoughts, I'm wrestling with this, and that statement I think that he means that we can say the existence of friendship and our longing for it is a unique testimony to the existence and the glory 
of God. It is a gracious, unnecessary, lavish gift for God to even give us the ability to have friendships. The beasts of the animal kingdom do not have friendships. They don't philosophize. They don't create works of art. We're created with the capacity and the built-in desire to make and enjoy friendships. As an aside here, just, just think about Think about the marvelous world in which we live, that the triune God created for us. It's full of sunsets that vary. Every single sunset is utterly unique. It's full of fireflies that biologically and chemically light up. They generate their own capacity for light. And fireflies, in addition to lightning bolts, that can crack through the night sky and obliterate buildings and trees and even strike people and some they, they, they fall dead in the moment. Others can describe the sensation of being hit with millions of volts of electricity. There's horses and there's magma-filled volcanoes. There's oceanic abysses in this world. There are tribes of people that have languages that vary as much as their cultures vary. And there's so many other gloriously detailed and beautiful and wonderful things about this world that all point to the glorious goodness and the existence of God and friendships ought to be right in that list. That's, that's the conclusion that I came to in thinking about this. Friendships are just as magnificent and wonderful as magma-filled volcanoes and fireflies. And they're totally unnecessary. God didn't have to give them to us. They're not necessary for procreation. They're not necessary for nurturing of children. They're utterly superfluous to the needs of the created order. And yet God gave them to us and we enjoy them deeply and we yearn for them significantly because God is real. Because he's real. Friendships testify to the existence and the reality of God's goodness and his existence. And so it's no wonder. It's no wonder then that the good friends that we have are so meaningful and enjoyable to us. It's no wonder that we long for deeper friends and more friends. When we don't have them, this all prepares us to truly consider the last thing that I want to leave with you. That last thing that I want to point you to is that the truest and greatest and deepest friend you could ever enjoy is Jesus. And that's not just a platitude. It's not just a casual, well, every sermon has to end with Jesus, right? It's actually really, really profound. All the things that we've said up until this point really do point to the reality that Jesus is the truest friend. Whether you've enjoyed good friends in the past, whether you enjoy deep friendships now, or whether you long for more and deeper friends than you currently have, or even if you say, I have no friend in the world. I'm utterly alone. There's no one that I can speak to and share about my life. There's no one who knows the details of my life. No one asks me to catch up about my life. Even if you're utterly alone, there is a friend that surpasses and fulfills all of your desires. Uh, let me just tell you honestly, your friends, no matter how great they are, those friendships fracture. They change. People move. They change their minds. They're not interested in the thing that they once were interested in, that you used to share such long conversations. They're over that now. They're on to something else. And now you don't ever catch up with them anymore. Those friendships will drift and those friends will die and they'll leave. 
and they'll be gone. But there is one friend who will not fracture or move or drift or change or even die. And that Jesus, when he came into the world, he delighted to be called the friend of sinners, even when people were perjuring him with that title. They thought they were dishonoring him by saying he was the friend of sinners, that he delighted to be around the outcasts and the unworthy, that he wanted to share meals with them, which in that context means he wanted to know about them and have conversations with them. He wanted to know about the details of their life. He was catching up with his friends, the sinners, and the Pharisees hated him for it. He doesn't just delight to call sinners his friends. He delights to call his followers his friends. John 15, 15, he says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. He calls them friends. And if you look in John 15, it, he, he, he's especially saying that he calls them friends because he tells them the truth. He tells them the truth. And that is what Jesus does. He is the friend who tells the truth. He tells us about our sin. He tells us, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. He tells us about his kingdom. He teaches us in the parables about what is coming, what cannot be stopped, what is coming in the world, and it is his kingdom. He tells us of his comfort. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't just tell the truth. He is the truth. Is not that the primary building block of what a friend is, is he's committed to telling you the truth? Jesus will always tell you the truth. Jesus communicates with his friends regularly. In fact, we're united to him by faith. We don't just communicate with him, we commune with him. 600 years before Jesus walked the face of the earth, Aristotle described friendship as having one soul between two persons. Two persons sharing the same soul. That's what he described as a true friendship. That's, that's, that blows my mind because Aristotle lived 300 years after 1 Samuel 18.1 described the friendship of David and Jonathan in this way. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. The Bible describes the knitting together of souls in friendship as something that is real and possible in this God-created universe. And that kind of friendship, I wonder if Aristotle read for Samuel. I wonder if he was aware of what the Bible said about friendships and its possibility. The friendship between David and Jonathan is a fascinating, fascinating foreshadowing of how the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, actually welcomes his friends into spiritual union with him by faith. You, your soul is actually knit to your friend Jesus by faith. You are united to him by faith. Jesus Christ actually welcomes his friends far greater than Moses who spoke face to face with God as a man speaks with his friend. We believers in Jesus are united by faith. We don't have to go up Mount Sinai. We don't have to speak with him through the cloud and the fire. No, he's actually come near to us and befriended us in all of our filth and shame. And he's forgiven us all of our iniquities. He's earned all of our righteousness. And like a good friend, he promises never to leave us or forsake us. He communes with his friends. Do you, do you know that Jesus actually did move away? But what did he say when he moved away? I'm coming back. I'm actually leaving to go prepare a place for you. 
And I'm coming back to take you to be with myself. And he's fasting from celebration until that day. Do you know, like this, do you know that your friend Jesus longs for you to be with him just as much as you long for him to be with you? That's the kind of friend that Jesus, he, he misses being with you physically just as much as you miss being with him. He longs for that day to come and take you to be with himself. That's the kind of friend Jesus is. He's committed. He will never leave or forsake. His death secured our salvation. His resurrection assured us of eternal life. And his spirit is our guarantee that he is coming to us. Friends, this friend is the one friend all of your enjoyment of and desire for friendship points you towards. He is the one. The whole universe is bent on overwhelming you with the glory of God and the glory of friendship is no different. Set the anchor of your soul. Set your very existence on this Jesus. He won't fracture or drift. He doesn't change his mind. His interest doesn't shift and change according to his experience. He knows all things and has experienced life in such a way that he knows your weakness. He knows that you are made of just dust. He won't die. He is coming back for you. Now, I want to give two applications, and the first is for those of you who are not yet friends of God. For those of you who are standoffish towards Jesus and don't know quite what to think about him, or maybe you're rejecting him altogether, I I hope that you can see Jesus' own desire to portray himself as a friend would draw you towards him. How how can you be standoffish to such a one? Would you consider coming to him? Would you consider laying all your burdens and your cares on him? Can you not see your great desire for friendship fulfilled in him? Your soul's aching and longing can only be satisfied in him. Can you not hear his words of truth resonating with your very own conscience and his promises of salvation resonating with what you know to be the end conclusion of this created order? He offers friendship to you. He beckons you and invites you to come to him. Don't refuse such a friend. Go to him. He will receive you. The second application I want to give is those of you who are friends of Jesus and friends of God. And as I I describe this, I want the musicians to come up because we're actually going to apply what we're listening to and learning. We're going to apply it with a song. We're going to sing uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. So you guys can come up. And And I want to describe this to you. So don't Don't let them be a distraction. Keep listening for just a few more moments. Rest more intentionally on Jesus as your friend. That's not a platitude. It's really not. Take your sins and your griefs to him. He will bear them for you. He hears you and he understands. He wants to listen to you. Pour your heart out to him. He's not confused by your complex life. The song that we'll sing says, What needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble? Do you have trouble anywhere? Trouble in friends. Trouble with desires for friends. We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer.
Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Resting in the friendship of Jesus will strengthen you to actually befriend others. Didn't Jesus do a good job in befriending you? Didn't he seek you out? Didn't he lay down? Didn't he come to you and tell you the truth? Didn't he come and spend time with you as your friend? Didn't he welcome you into fellowship with him? Didn't he provide everything you needed? That's, that's a close friend. Didn't he do a good job of befriending you? Isn't he a faithful friend even now? Initiate friendships the way Jesus initiated towards you. He knew the difficulties of friendship. I mean, the betrayal and loss, the kiss of someone who is your friend, who's now your enemy. He, he even knew what it was like to have friends who would leave you behind and fall asleep rather than bear your burdens. Those are his close friends. Have you ever had that happen? Burdens so deep that you're weeping and you go to your friends and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm so tired. I was sleeping. That'll make you want to just leave a friend behind and say, what kind of a friend are you? I'm going to go make a different friend. Did Jesus do that with his disciples? No. He was a faithful friend. He knew it was like to be faithful and committed even when it wasn't reciprocated. And that's what he does for you. That's what he's done for me. And that's what he will do for you if you go to him as your savior and your Lord and your friend. Be a friend like Jesus is to you. And as we sing this song, sing it, sing it in rejoicing and be glad. This is not a dirge. It's actually quite upbeat. And if you're moved to tears, sing it with rejoicing. That what a friend, what a friend do I have in Jesus. And let your reflections on Jesus' friendship with you drive you to be a good friend and one who is always befriending others. Let's sing.